Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm at the National Trust pub of Stickle Barn in Great Langdale today, sitting in the beer garden in the sunshine with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Hello, Davey. Great to be back with you. We've had some correspondence, Mark, <laughs> after our last episode with David Powell Thompson. We asked him about ridge walks, didn't we? We did indeed, and uh, I've checked out with social media, our Facebook and Twitter correspondence, and people seem to be game for comments, and uh, Don Dorber from Staffordshire said, Scorfell Pike from the Estelle side over Penn. He said, now that is the most majestic way up onto the summit of Scorfell Pike. I believe that's the same with you, isn't it? Yep. Cam Spout approach would be mine, but it's a fine approach, yep. So who else have we got? We've got uh, Richard Earnshaw from Wakefield, who uh, suggested Causey Pike, Scarcrag, Sale and Crag Hill. He, he loves that. I have to say, actually, the Northwestern Fells are made for ridge walking, aren't they? Oh, they are. Gorgeous. And then we got Paul Weston from Bristol, who both loves high style, but he also thinks the Mosdale horseshoe is spectacular. That's, right. of course, including Pillar. Pillar, yeah. And he's... Obviously, a man of ridges elsewhere. He loves uh, Lawley and Caradoc in Stropshire. He said, on a warm summer's evening, it's enchanting. Well, it reminds me of Vaughan Williams and A.E. Houseman and all that kind of magic. Oh, oh, we're coming outside of Cumbria. This is dodgy, isn't it? This is dodgy. Uh, James Lunny from Norfolk again. Uh, A look, Pike Ridge, he said. It's uh, Mm. wonderful. And he says, uh, he loves our podcasts. Finds them interesting to hear when he's driving. Right, good. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, Ullock Pike, of course, that starts off at that magical word, watches. The watches, yeah. The watches. The watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it's, it's a timeless stones. spot. Timeless spot. Oh, yeah. I, I'm oh, sorry, dear, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Very good. So, a few Ridge Walk recommendations from our listeners there. Uh, if you've got any more that you want to share with us, please do get in touch. You can get in touch with us via social media at... Country Stride 1. Country Stride 1, or you can send us an email via the website, www.countrystride.co.uk. Right, Mark, we have an episode to get on with. What are we doing today? Well, the National Trust are very aware that the 18th of April is World Heritage Day, and we are hugely honoured that they've asked us to share with us the experience of explaining the heritage landscape, the cultural landscapes of this area, and they've chosen Great Langdale. And so Jamie Lunn, their archaeologist, is going to be my communicant as we do a walk from the Stickle Barn uh, to the old Dungeon Guild and round and back. A low-level walk around Great Langdale, talking about this mix of farming heritage and the wild landscapes and about how the two have coexisted over many, many centuries. Yeah, it should be fascinating. Let's go and meet Jamie above the new Dungeon Guild. I'm in the company of Jamie Lunn, the National Trust archaeologist for the whole of the Lake District. I'd love to know a little bit about you and your background that drew you to become the uh, archaeologist for this particular place. Oh, well, I've been in the Lake District for 21 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not an area that I knew as a child. I was never lucky enough to be one of these families uh, who comes to the Lake District and spends many happy summers camping. So when I took this job 21 years ago, it was a, a landscape... Um, that was wholly unknown to me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Peak District, the White Peak on the right. limestone. Right. That was where I did my cycling and walking as a, as a child and a teenager. And while I will always love the place I grew up, nothing quite prepared me for uh, arrival in the Lake District and the discovery of these 13 wonderful valleys. They're landscapes that I never tire of, that my friends and colleagues never tire of. Now, I'm really intrigued 
about this whole notion of World Heritage Site designation. The, the Lake District um, is the UK's newest World Heritage Site. Uh, it was inscribed in July 2017 after a long process of inscription, uh, which really had um, three parts to it. Uh, the journey began in 1986 when the Lake District first started to investigate the potential for becoming uh, a World Heritage Site and joining this elite international uh, club of the best cultural and natural landscapes and sites across the globe. And uh, our first attempt, our first bid in 1986, uh, sought to have the Lake District inscribed for its natural significance, its natural attributes. But it was felt that on a global scale, those natural attributes of the Lake District didn't quite um, stand up to scrutiny. It's not exactly a, a Costa Rica, is it? it? It's not. It's not. It's not the Amazonian basin. It's not the Great Barrier Reef. We, we, were, we were told we were certainly very special and that UNESCO were interested in the lake's bid. So we returned three years later in 1989 with what was called a mixed bid, a combined bid which sought to celebrate and recognise the natural and cultural aspects of the Lake District. And from what we know, UNESCO found our bid very persuading. Mm -hmm. They recognised that we had something special and that we belonged on that World Heritage list. But unfortunately, we didn't really fit their categories. So remarkably... Would you believe it? Well, exactly, yes, <laughs> yes. They created a, a model. That's right. They went away and thought about the Lake District and also thought about how the Lake District was emblematic of other cultural landscapes across the globe Quite. that were falling through their categorization process. So in 1992, they introduced a new category called cultural landscape. A cultural landscape. It is a term that, that baffles some people, even people who are quite familiar with the, the technical wording of World Heritage Sites. But for me, it refers to uh, a landscape that is a product of um, the combined works of people and nature. It is perhaps the modification of the natural by people through practices, uh, often traditional practices repeated across generations and through centuries that modify the natural. And it's that modification of the natural um, where, where the magic happens. Absolutely. Um, where that, that distinctiveness and uniqueness and the special qualities of world heritage sites yeah. uh, are, are created. And in the background, we can hear a shepherd calling his sheep. That's right, yes, yes. <laughs> Any doubts that we're doing this in the studio have now evaporated. Completely gone. <laughs> uh, typically using a quad, but he's out there and, and there's a, a flock of herdwick. And there you can see the, the sun with his crook running through the bottom field. Drawing them up the field. I suspect it's dad on the quad bike opening the gate, driving the stock through uh, and out onto the common. Something that people have probably been doing in much the same way without the quad bike for about 800 years. And they're coming towards Shall us. Shall we move to the side? And, uh... <laughs> I think we'll have to open the gate. <laughs> They've moved on. It's fascinating to see that. There's some going to the left now, so they're being shooed back down the field. And some have been separated out, in effect. So, No doubt, I think they're separating the, the pregnant uh, ewes from those, uh, those that were probably born just last year and, and uh, haven't been put to the ram this year. So they're all going off into their different parts of the valley. Yep. Uh, the farmer obviously will know where the pasture is best for the pregnant ones to give them the most goodness, get them ready for lambing. People who live and work in this landscape have an intimate knowledge of their farms and their surroundings and their landscapes. These are places that have been stood on to guide those sheep across generations. The lovely? same gateway, the same outgang, the same lonins have been used. Um, you know, some of these uh, pathways and routeways for sheep and people go back potentially millennia. Absolutely, it's fascinating. Isn't it? And of course the sheep have evolved over that period of time, but they've uh, evolved to be able to sustain this incredibly uh, harsh, uh, challenging landscape. Herdwicks and other um, breeds of, of sheep that have uh, become 
recognised as traditional breeds, uh, have, over the centuries, developed a genetically inherited knowledge of where they need to graze, where their sweet pastures are and areas that belong to their farm. Probably through repeated practice, learned behaviour, I suppose, and the the maintenance of the of the the heaved commons is one of the things that we are absolutely determined to conserve in the Lake District, um, which takes quite a lot of work. It's a fine balance because the reason why sheep stay heaved is partly because of this inherited genetic knowledge, but also because there is the right balance of sheep across the wider common. So there is no temptation, there is no nothing to pull them into new areas no. because the, the grass is being eaten to the same extent there. It's not greener or somewhere else. Precisely. <laughs> and, and what we've seen in, in recent decades is well-intentioned uh, schemes to remove sheep numbers from the fell and bring the flock numbers down. But there have been unintended consequences of that because maintaining the, the heath system and looking for that um, balance between supporting rural economy, uh, supporting the farming community and maximising biodiversity takes, takes some doing uh, mm. to find that sweet spot. Um, I remember when I first came to the Lake District 20 or so years ago, I remember reading in uh, Bill Rollinson's fantastic oh, yes. introduction to the Lake District, how uh, the Herdwicks had been brought over by the Vikings um, in, the, in the 10th century. And I felt this was probably quite a fanciful story. A good story, but potentially quite fanciful. But now, of course, recent DNA analysis has shown that these uh, that Herdwicks do have an awful lot of genetic similarity to Scandinavian breeds. Exactly. So now the science has proven that what we've always suspected and traditional knowledge has told us is probably very true. Brilliant. Well, we'll move on. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, the sun's come out beautifully, hasn't it, Jamie? What a fabulous day. We just parted from seeing the shepherd. We are looking now at a great amphitheatre of fells with, to the south, Lingmore and Side Pike, Pikeablisco and Blake Rig over there to the southwest and above that somewhat lost in the clouds crinkle crags and above us raven crag and so forth part of loft crag running up behind us the craggy slopes of the langdale pikes now we're right beside a, a, an intake wall but the the walls in this landscape are very fundamental can you explain some of the wall structure langdale is is something of a a classic landscape in terms of Lake District history. But this landscape, if you know how to look and read it, uh, reveals an incredible history going back 800 to 1,000 years. Our first mention of enclosure in Great Langdale occurs in a document written by uh, William de Lancaster, the uh, Baron of Kendal, as he... Uh, carved out the manor of Bayes Brown, which includes this area we're looking at here, and gave it to Conishead Priory. And that was in 1216. And that deed of gift describes an agricultural landscape. It describes uh, a single wall creating a very simple infield outfield system known as a ring garth. And inside that, there were hay meadows and pastures divided up amongst the various tenants of the lords and barons. And outside you had this uh, open area, the area we might call common today, but was referred to as wastes back in the medieval period. Not because it was a wasteland, quite the opposite. Um, it was land that was held exclusively by the lord or the local baron, and they would charge rents for grazing, uh, enclosure, the collection of firewood, the collection of peat, or quarrying and was a great source of natural resources mm -hmm. for the tenants of the Lord, but also an important source of revenue and social political control for the um, local nobility and elites. So we can imagine that certainly by um, the, the early 13th century, we have a landscape here that is already starting to take on the form of what we might see as a, a traditional Lake District landscape. We have an enclosed valley bottom and areas of, of high fell surrounding it being grazed. 
and exploited for, for peat and firewood. The next significant change in the Lake District landscape, I think, really took place around the time of the Tudor period, when um, an improvement in the climate and uh, a period of prolonged peace led to uh, improvements in the economy and people's fortunes. The population rose and to feed that growing population we started to see land being enclosed around the sides of the Ringarth, um, creating these little networks of small fields we know we call as intakes. Looking southwards down the valley can you see that network of intakes that spread up onto the uh, almost the toe of Grasmere Common there? I'm with you. Well, the very uppermost of those fields is called Wormel Crag. Wow. And we, during our uh, historic landscape survey, we discovered a document that described the walling in of Wormel Crag uh -huh. in 1691. Wow. So that little piece of detective work there, in conjunction with an analysis of the field pattern, allows us to say with great confidence that that field system, which covers the whole flank of Great Langdale there, was in place by 1691 and the fact that that's the uppermost field dates everything below it which yes. is very convenient for us. And Jamie will look south uh, across the valley onto the slopes of Ling Moorfell but those field boundaries there are subtly different aren't they? They are subtly different. The walls are straight, mm -hmm. they ignore those natural topographic features, they go straight over the top of crags um, where the smaller fields further down the valley seem to work with the pattern of the landscape. Uh, yeah, they take advantage of the contours, whereas these don't. That's right. And I think these, um, this network of larger, rector, linear fields that we can see just opposite us now are doing something quite different. I think they're much later. They, they probably have their origins between 1700 and 1750. Right. And I think what they're doing is formalising the traditional heifing of milk cows. You can well imagine that milk cows that need to be milked once a day can't roam too far away from the farm. The, oh. the farmer's yeah. wife doesn't want to be chasing them for too much of her day. So quite often there was a tradition of, of um, allocating particular heaths mm -hmm. for milk cows to particular farms uh, in an informal arrangement, but that's where the cows normally were. And as the, some of the, the traditions of communal management that effectively act as the social glue that holds the traditional farming systems of the Lake District together, started to be replaced by more formalised systems. We saw these traditional heaths for the milk cows being walled in. Mm -hmm. So now the, the, the cows couldn't escape. They were contained in fields and those traditional arrangements that might have been persistent for two or three centuries were now fixed objects in the landscape. I'm intrigued, uh, Jamie, about this whole notion of these commons because there's commons all over England, all over Scotland. Every community had their waste or common area and uh, here they are distinctly different from everywhere else. There are common lands, um, upland and lowland common lands throughout the UK. You'll be familiar with some of the traditional lowland commons in the Cotswolds and places like that. Um, uh, often areas that are still having roaming cattle and have that agricultural feel today, but they're usually quite small. Mm -hmm. um, over in Scotland, where you have a huge areas of unenclosed mountainous land, which is uh, in some areas still farmed today, that, that's different again from the Lake District picture because that traditional pattern of use of those areas was, has been interrupted at various periods of Scottish history, perhaps the most uh, famous being the various clearances that took place in Scotland, interrupting that traditional use and separating indigenous peoples and populations from the land upon which they have um, not only uh, make their living, but a very acute sense of, of identity and belonging. We come back to those reasons of why the Lake District was inscribed as the World Heritage Site. And I think for me, it is this, um, its uniqueness in having survived and perpetuated as a traditionally recognisable system of, of what we call agro-pastoralism, basically farming. 
that hasn't changed an awful lot in its mechanisms and its outputs for almost a thousand years. And we just don't see traditional farming systems perpetuating for that length of time, not only in this country, but in Europe and further afield so across is, the globe. It is, it is global. You can walk across the Lake District National Park in a couple of days at a fairly reasonable pace. It's not a huge area. But within that area, 22% of the National Park is recognised as common. And that uh, constitutes the largest area of unenclosed common in Western Europe today. I'll pass by this barn there, Jamie. I expect it's for cattle, isn't it? For shelter on the wet days. And above some large trees, there's crags. Uh, familiar to me because when I joined my mountaineering club, oh, goodness me, 50 years ago, crikey me, 51 years ago, I climbed Raven Crag next to Middlefell Buttress up there. And that was probably my first ever rock climb. Uh, this is part of the story of the Lake District we know today, really. It is climbing and the, the idea of making your recreation in landscapes like these very much has uh, its roots in the Lake District and features as part of our second theme of World Heritage uh, Site Status. If that first theme is uh, the landscape that's been produced by the interaction between people uh, and the natural environment over a thousand years to create this landscape that we that we see today. Then the second theme is about how people have in the last two or three hundred years responded in a meaningful and creative way to this landscape. Um, in many of the other Lake District valleys we have a rich history of um, the picturesque mm -hmm. and the romantic associations. Where there's the... a lake I would guess. That's right, that's right. Uh, the picturesque tourists were not particularly drawn to the Great Langdale, largely because it lacked a large body of water or a lake that would provide um, artistic interest, would provide um, a, a contrast between the drama of the fells, and also it didn't reflect the fells, which obviously, yeah. if the you were seeking to, effect, to yeah. paint, the, paint the fells, then that was, that was something that you, you would look for. Mm -hmm. Nor was this valley one of uh, Wordsworth's favourites either. Uh, it doesn't feature an awful lot in his in his work or indeed the other romantic poets. The closest he really gets is to Bleetarn over in Little Langdale, which is used as the backdrop for a passage in the excursion. So for whatever reason, perhaps because of its absence from the picturesque literature and canon, he doesn't seem to have been particularly fascinated by Great Langdale. But... Um, I think looking back up to the climbers who've actually now set off on their route, that, that person's about seven metres higher than he was last time I looked. <laughs> <laughs> um, people have been inspired by this landscape in different ways. And certainly in Great Langdale and Wasdale, the birth of the British climbing and mountaineering um, uh, as a sport has its spiritual home, obviously with Nape's Needle in, in Pillar in, in, in Wasdale. But these crags as well uh, have been enjoyed since the, the birth of British rock climbing and mountaineering. The old Dungeon Gill is a, emblematic of that. Like, Wasdale Head Inn, which is a farm that's converted into a pub, largely because of these new influx of people who were coming for the adventure. I've got to ask, your, your first climb, was it your first and last, or was it the start of a, uh, a love of mountain climbing? It, it became a pattern for quite a while, and then I, I discovered the thrill of, of being on my own in mountains and just climbing wasn't wasn't the way I could do, achieve that and then I, I really got into writing guidebooks and climbing up a cliff wasn't where I needed to be. <laughs> well I've come through the gates come above the old dungeon gill ODG and I got a fabulous view ahead to Pika Blisco uh, and from Oxendale the sunlit band uh, with little bits of snow still on Crinkle Crags, slightly capped in cloud. I remember 51 years ago when I first came to this valley, climbed up on Raven Crag, I went up the band, up onto Bow Fell uh, and onto the Flat Crags, and it was traumatic. But way back then, the paths were naturally damaged by walkers. Well, I think everyone's familiar with um, 
the various iterations of Fix the Fells, which have been so successful over the past 15 years to help heal some of the worst erosion scars that are normally a consequence of the results of people and, I think, water, with water being by far and away the most... Um, Aggressive the, element. That's right, the strongest erosive force. But um, thinking back to how that approach to footpath conservation and repair and where its origins lie, I, I think the band which is what we're looking at now, is probably a good place to start. It's always been one of the more popular routes, just like Langdale's been one of the more popular valleys for people wanting to get out into the Lake District. And from what I understand, 40 years ago, the path was 10 metres wide, with lots of people struggling to find a route up there. And the National Trust, working with various partners, including the, the Lake District National Park Authority, got together and, and trialled various approaches to resurfacing and creating a sustainable surface for people to access the, fe the fells safely. And some of those early footpaths were criticised as being stairways to heaven. They, they felt um, that they were urbanising the Lake District fells, making it too easy and robbing it of some of its charm and character. Uh, and I think perhaps some of those early footpaths were, would be what we would call unsympathetic mm. today. And the techniques have evolved and the styles have, have developed and the people undertaking the work have become far more expert since those first early paths. Their techniques now are so sensitive and so in keeping to work on the fells, the way they pitch paths, the way they use uh, inverting techniques are so very, very sensitive now. And truly, if you're thinking in terms of historical terms, the Romans and, and all generations where there was a need to create a human journey through a landscape for carts or for horses or for walking, there was always a need to maintain it at a certain s structure. And the Romans understood about keeping footpaths water-free. You can walk along High Street or over Rhinos today. You can still find those Roman roads and either side of them is a very effective drain, keeping the water off the road. So I think um, the, the way of making successful roads and paths in the Lake District is well established. Interestingly, if you go into Dudden Bottom, the road is on the south side of the Beck and on the north side, underneath Little Stand and Cold Pike and so on, You've got a genuine causeway of the Roman road. It's still there, and the ditch is either side, because they always had a cambered bit of agar yes. with a ditch either side. They knew how to do a job, and it's, it's still there. And it's still there. <laughs> and, you know, this is it. Take your message from history. Well, Jamie, we've come through the farm, Middlefell Place, which is beyond the old Dungeon Gill, with the crags sunlit above them. Typical whitewashed farmhouse and stone buildings and come onto this lovely old Packhorse Bridge. I'm intrigued by the farm itself. Once upon a time, farms weren't like that, were they? That's right. They would have looked and functioned uh, differently. Uh, Middlefell Place Farm's quite interesting. It's one of ten that was referred to in a survey of the, by the Earl of Cumberland in the 1570s as being extant in Great Langdale at the time. And farmers in the Lake District have always enjoyed quite a peculiar relationship, a unique tenancy arrangement, which has its origins back in the post-conquest feudal period, where given the proximity of these borderlands to Scotland mm -hmm. and later the border reavers, there was an expectation and indeed an obligation for Lake District farmers to raise men-at-arms at certain times um, and defend these borderlands and provide service to the uh, local lords and barons. They would gather, they'd be drawn together on a particular time and have to be there at their service. They to go would. To, to go to war. They'd have to answer the call and they would be expected to go into war on foot, probably with a minimal of equipment and support their lord or baron who would have ridden into battle on a horse with the rest Pitch of the nobles. <laughs> Probably something Pitch quite as simple fall. as that, yes. <laughs> oh dear. Certainly in the 13th and 14th century, cross-border raids by the Scots were really quite a common occurrence. There's a path that branches down from the ridgeline off Yoke, Nilbell and Troutbeck, which is known as the Scots Rake, 
supposedly was their preferred route through the borderlands and down into the centre of the, the Lake District Fells. This tradition of providing border service and military service by the Lake District farmers did eventually yield them some political and social benefit. In lieu of this border service, the farming tenants of the lords and the barons had throughout the medieval period enjoyed a unique tenancy status, similar to freehold, mm -hmm. as if they owned their own farms and their land, which was known as customary freehold. So they held their land and their farms as if they owned it under the sufferance of the lord of the manor. Now, after the dissolution and the Elizabethan shake-up of land ownership across the country, this uh, customary freehold was challenged. Mm -hmm. Why should the Lake District farmers not pay their duties to the Crown? The question ah. came. So a petition was raised right. and eventually lodged with Queen Elizabeth to say, we have customarily enjoyed a freehold status in lieu of our border service obligations. So this is something that we already possess. So there is no question of charging us crown rents. No. We have customary freehold. And to their delight, Queen Elizabeth accepted this petition and they continue to enjoy their customary freehold status. And the cementing and the recognition of that had quite profound consequences for the Lake District and indeed the way the Lake District looks today because this knowledge that Lake District farmers were now safe to pass on their land and their farms to their children, that their su succession had been secured, encouraged them to rebuild farmhouses and farm buildings which were largely uh, timber framed yes. in stone to invest for the next future generations. And we witnessed something that we called the great rebuilding in the Lake District yes. from about 1600 to 1750 with many of the iconic Lake District farm buildings being erected in stone in, during that period. I know the, from about 1600 in Northumbria, you've got uh, basils, which are the beginnings of, of, that, of that pattern, uh, defended farmhouses, where the interface with Scotland was even more, more of an issue uh, because they, the border raids with border reavers meant they were constantly having their houses burnt down. Here, it was more a case that they were able to actually be more settled here and, and build more substantial houses rather than defended farmhouses. They were proper farms. I think that's, that's absolutely right. What we see is, is one architectural tradition, that of Bastel Howers, Peel Towers and defended homesteads in the style of Kentmere Hall, the, the Sizer Castle, um, Burnside Hall, giving way to a much more domestic scale of architecture. Uh, one which is of a human scale right. um, and, is, and is built for in the enjoyment of living yes, and, and the benefits of accommodation you, rather than defence. We have such a rich tradition of vernacular mm. buildings, the vernacular, that, that choice to use the local materials and the knowledge how to get the best from your stone and your wood um, typifies Lake District architecture. It's sad that we don't talk in the vernacular ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jamie, we're approaching the campsite. I can look back and get a wonderful perspective on Middlefell Place and uh, the old Dungeon Gill. Ravencrag and Mid Middlefell Buttress, they're beautifully lit up above the larch trees there. It's a very painterly landscape, isn't it, with that dramatic light? Oh, my child. And you can see Gimmercrag up to the left, and up uh, Mickledean, Bowfell itself is Captain Cloud, but the sunlight is on Rosset Pike, so that's all clear. And the sunlight on the band, uh, and immediately to my left, because uh, we're actually on a little bridge here, there's a gill, and it's lined with willow trees that are pollarded, I would say. Pollarded trees and hay meadows are wonderful examples of what we actually mean in a physical sense by the cultural landscape. Taking hay meadows, you know, a hay meadow is, is clearly a living, uh, organic element, isn't it? It's, it's all those wonderful grasses and herbs. Because if you look at it now, it just looks like a common garden lawn. But here we are, we're in March. Things are going to happen in that meadow. That's right. I mean, I've stood here and marvelled at the, at the colours, um, looking up into 
uh, Mickledon in, in previous years. So yes, it does look a rather moribund green at the moment, but in two or three months' time, after a little bit of sunshine and some rain, these will be really alive with a, hopefully a, a broad range of grasses and herbs that not only provide great winter fodder for the animals but also great for pollinators and insects provide habitat for small mammals as well as being beautiful to look at and there's a quite a compact group of meadows of that sort that they're not everywhere they're not um, they do take a little bit of time and effort to restore but it really is a model for what we can do in other valleys and how we can use traditional farming methods not only to support farming today, but also to create uh, a wonderful, natural, healthy, natural environment. We came over that bridge a moment ago, and I was very aware that it was a very straight body of water, like a canal almost. That is Great Langdale Beck, and it is clearly artificially straightened, isn't it? It mm -hmm. is ruler straight, and you've got large cobbles um, making up the, the battered walls on either side, containing the water, canalising it. And I think that was put in uh, after a, a very substantial flood oh, yes. that um, decimated the agricultural land of the Lake District in the mid-20th century. And I think the response at the time was to try and stop that happening again. Rather like Storm Desmond and what they've done in certainly Glen Ridding, they've had to do that there. Freak storm events pick up huge amounts of gravel and stone from the fells and the gills. Um, the, the rivers break their banks, occupy the valley floor and deposit all of that stone and gravel, leaving tonnes of it to be removed by the farmers as part of the, the clear-up. So I think that canalisation was an attempt to stop that happening again. You mentioned earlier that we stood on a little bridge and looking back there's a whole series of what looked like pollarded, uh, certainly ash trees, maybe a few older trees. A pollarded tree is a tree that is routinely cut probably on an 18-20 year cycle and that the straight rods or yeah. shoots from the tree are sawn off yeah. and those traditionally would have been used as um, for building materials, um, fence posts, gates. for hedge laying gates. So a little yacht. Pollarding would often be done um, when there was snow on the ground and there was nothing else to eat. Mm -hmm. And the small amount of, of bark on the, was predominantly ash trees that were, that were lopped, would provide just a little bit of sustenance, a little bit of mineral goodness, as you've described, wow. just to get those sheep through that difficult week. And of course, it would also remove the bark. So the farmer had some nice clean, bark strip poles to collect at the end of the week. I oh, can't beat a sheep for nibbling at anything. <laughs> <laughs> the wind's got up now uh, and we've come up above into a larch coppice above the campsite. It gives a little bit of a chance to look with some perspective up onto Loft Crag and Gimmer Crag and you can just see a little bit of Pika's stickle. Now, I think that has some significance you might be able to tell us about. That's right, the Pika Stickle is, is really the epicentre of what was probably the UK's first major industry. Mm. And it's centred upon the procurement of stone tools or stone for manufacturing tools, particularly axes, but other tools as well, wedges, adzes, chisels, uh, any, any sort of bladed or uh, instrument that needed it to carry an edge and we believe that prehistoric communities small groups of people would uh, probably journey into the Lake District on a seasonal basis I suspect getting up to Pika Stickle was a summer activity to make yeah. the best of the weather and they appeared to select certain types of, of rock for its glassy hard character and quarry it using very simple techniques of fire setting and chisels, break it off into lumps similar size of shoe boxes, right. and then work it into uh, flaked axes. They would nap it. I'm sure you've seen yeah. people napping flint on the telly or maybe at first hand. And through that process of reducing the stone with a, a hammer stone, flaking it off, you'd get the rough outline of an axe. For a while, Biker Stickle is, as I say, the epicenter and the focus of that Neolithic quarrying activity. The, the same rock occurs along a 19 kilometer corridor through the Lake District. Right. And we get people quarrying stone for stone tool manufacturing along its entire length. But for whatever reason, Pika Stickle was chosen 
as being the favourite place. There are far more extensive and larger axe factories here than anywhere else. Did it hold a sort of a, a venerance because it was such a striking spot? Well, there's been an awful lot written by archaeologists about why Piker Stickle might have been the preferred location. And there might be something to do with it being by far and away the most difficult, highest and inaccessible area to procure stone. So some people have chosen to to see that as evidence that because of the difficulty rating of it, accessing it, stone from that source was seen as extra special yeah. because of the awkwardness of, of access. Who knows if that's right? We know that the, the axe factory trade, as we call it, probably began about 4,000 BC and tailed away about 3,000 BC. So for a thousand years, there were groups journeying in on a seasonal basis acquiring stone, manufacturing rough-out uh, rough axes on the spot, yep. and then taking those outside of the Lake District into places like the Eden Valley, uh, into the Kendall limestones, and then grinding or polishing those rough-out axes to make smooth axes that could be then hafted onto yep. a wooden handle and used for all manner of activities from butchering meat to coppicing, um, to yeah, gardening and breaking up yeah. the soil. And, and they were considered so important or valuable that pristine examples of them exist all over Europe. Stone axes from uh, Great Langdale uh, fill the museums of, of Europe. We have stone axe finds uh, from as far away as the Netherlands and the Italian and French Alps. So some of these polished axes were being traded, traded great distances but also uh, exotic axes were being uh, traded in return so quite often we have jadeite axes from the alps which have found their way back, back here in the opposite direction so the further the away these stones are from their source the more exotic they it, become there was something very special about stone axes the fact that we find pristine examples mm. deliberately thrown away in bogs uh, or pushed into the clints and grikes of limestone pavement, clearly unused, clearly manufactured over many hours and days, but then deposited ritually without use. We also find miniature ones, miniature axes that have been perforated and maybe used as worn as pendants. Oh, yeah. So these things clearly have a life beyond the utilitarian. Yes, clearly. Well, it's fascinating to see. We wandered along the fell side in what I think you've mentioned earlier, Jamie, were fields that were set aside for cattle, cows, the Galloway cows, the definite type of pasture enclosure. Uh, and we're now looking north across the valley to that absolutely majestic uh, fellscape. We walked underneath it, now we're right back and we got a perspective up Stickle Gill towards Pavey Ark and Harrison Stickle. Over to my right, uh, White Gill. And below us uh, are the New Dungeon Gill uh, and Stickle Barn, which is our destiny. But immediately below us, there's a few Herdwick sheep and a farmstead, a whitewashed farmhouse and a bank barn. Now, this is Side Farm. In our casual chat just a moment ago, off mic, you mentioned the significance of this farm and other farms in this vicinity. That's right, uh, Stoolend. It's one of five farms that was gifted to the National Trust by George Trevelyan uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And his legacy is, is really so very important, not just for Great Langdale, but for the wider Lake District. He is very much part of the innovative conservation community of people that included William Wordsworth, Ruskin, Beatrix Potter, and the Marshall family of, of people who bought uh, land and gifted it to organisations like the National Trust and had big debate about the Lake District and its role as a sort of national property. For Trevelyan, the story starts in the first decade of the 20th century when he is brought by his family on holiday mm -hmm. to Great Langdale and they stay at Robin Gill. Down towards Chapel Style. That's right, yes, halfway down the valley. And it was there on those holidays that he fell in love with the Lake District and particularly um, had great interest and affection for the traditional life of the Dalesman farmer. The, the things that he saw out of the window just as they'd impressed Wordsworth 
a century or so before they impressed Trevelyan as an example, a glimpse of people at harmony with their world. George Trevelyan had a, a long and distinguished academic career. He was Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University and Master of, of Trinity College and remained a frequent visitor to the, to the Lake District and, and Great Langdale where he was able to observe the creeping urbanisation of the Lake District as it became ever more tourist. popular as a tourist, tourist. De- de- destination. He, he did two or three really incredibly significant th- things. The first of which he, he acquired land including these five farms in the Lake District, which he then donated in perpetuity to the National Trust right. in order to conserve the, the landscape and the traditional way of life that he loved so much. But also he was instrumental in undertaking conversations with the Forestry Commission during the 1930s and dissuading them from their policy of forestering the Central Lake District. In those <coughs> decades after the First World War, uh, there was a shortage of commercial timber in the UK and the Forestry Commission thought that some of these less productive marginal farming areas were probably better put under commercial conifer plantations. So, like, like Ennerdale and so on, yeah. And, and Hard Knot Forest, mm. uh, you know, both, both great examples of that work. And the, and the plan was, and there's, there's still various maps that show the extent of the ambition of the Forestry Commission to plant up the central fells and George Trevelyan was, was instrumental in uh, raising objections on behalf of the Trust and highlighting those other significances, those other values that were perhaps unappreciated. He was a very persuasive man. Clearly, yes, clearly a man of his time as well uh, and got, I think we would agree, the right outcome um, and prevented many of these landscapes that are so iconic and treasured today from being covered in conifers. Oh, it's just incomprehensible now. But we are always faced with those challenges. Somebody having another perspective on a place is always going to be there. That's why we have the Friends of the Lake District. That's why we have the National Trust. Organisations in their own different levels that represent a wider perspective. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I certainly feel very heartened that there is a sense that the Lake District is looked after today. I think most people in the country think that and I think that's due to the work not only of the National Trust but because we're in a national park and that we're now within a a world heritage site that is not only governed by a responsible partnership of agencies and and bodies locally but also uh, under the wing of this global conservation authority. So it's global but it's reflected locally. Well I have to thank you Jamie for giving us your time It's been magic for me. I've learned a good deal. We'll head for the Stickle Barn. I believe that you've actually got a licensed premises. We have. So I think we'll make that our final stop on the journey today, Mark. Thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. journey's end and we are back once again at Stickle Barn which is filling up with people having lunch birds are singing in the background and the sun still beaming down and I feel Mark as if I've learnt more in the past hour than I, uh, I normally do in an hour No it was very rich wasn't it Jamie he comes from the Peak District which is comparably a fascinating heritage landscape Yep so he comes with a, 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 a perception of what landscape can contain and the human influence. But here you've got it, you've got mountains as well, and he conveyed that very well. I love this whole notion of this, the commons and the way that their farmers have continued mm. and can still continue to interrelate with that open wild area that fell walkers think of just as wild mountain areas. Yeah. But actually it's integral with the farming community. Uh, two highlights from me, Mark. Witnessing the herdwicks being rounded up onto the open fell, which obviously, I guess, the weather has improved to such an extent that a lot of them can go back up on the common again. Yeah, they had to segregate them. It was magic that they just came immediately past us. 
It was. Actually, it reminds me, we saw the opposite process, didn't we, at the tail end of last year with the Frasers when we saw them all coming down. <laughs> down, the down for tupping. Yeah, now, now, tupping now, we're, time, yeah. now we're leading to the point where uh, lambing comes about. It's interesting to see how the two generations, the farmer yeah. on the quad and the young yeah. lad, uh, had to race around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the, um, the other thing that interested me was the Trevelyan factor. So... His influence, particularly in this valley, with buying up land, but also campaigning against the afforestation, which would have taken place. Uh, it required a lot of heavy lifting in campaign terms to, to get that stopped. He obviously was an influential man. Mm. Uh, this is what you need in every generation. You need people who not only can harness and get a body of people to support an idea, but you need people who think in the same way as the people who are making the decisions. Absolutely. And he, actually he, stand against them and to make them think twice. It's he, rather like John Muir when he got President Roosevelt to go into Yosemite and to appreciate how important it was for America to actually care for wilderness areas. That's and right, yeah. Trevelyan was doing a similar thing here, but it, it was a cultural landscape he wanted to sustain and has done. And has done, yes. We are walking in the legacy of, of the work that he carried out at that time. What have you got planned for us, Mark, for Country Stride 13? Well, it's not going to be unlucky. It's going to be very positive because instead of being in the mountains, we're going to be right down on the Solway Plain. We're going to uh, Campfield Marshes, RSPB site in the Solway A1B, and we'll get a, a view of the raised Myers and then walk out onto the tidal estuary and, and reach the railway abutments, which once was a railway across the sands there. It was over a mile long and so on. But we'll get a perception of the richness of the flora and fauna of that setting with Anne Lingard. So that's the next episode of Country Stride. But for now, thank you for joining us in Great Langdale, in the sunshine here in the shadow of the magnificent Langdale Pikes. We'll see you next time for Countryside. Bye.